Do you have any children, Guinan? A lot. Ever had any trouble relating to them? Just one. One. Wouldn't listen to anybody. Did he grow out of it? Took several hundred years, but I managed to bring him around. How? A mother shapes her child in ways she doesn't even realize. Sometimes just by listening. Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and burnt tomato space egg. And I'm Elizabeth, wild girl of the woods and student of humanoid psychology. Love that. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise, to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I discuss good parenting and adolescent psychology. The first child we will look at is TNG's own polarizing wunderkind, Wesley Crusher. Evolution was written by Michael Piller and Michael Wagner, directed by Vinrish Colby and premiered TNG's third season in 1989. The Enterprise has welcomed aboard Dr. Stubbs, an eminent astrophysicist, to assist him in the launching of The Egg for Science. Much to his horror, the ship is experiencing seemingly random malfunctions which threaten the lives of those aboard and, more urgently to Stubbs, cancel his experiment. In sickbay, we are reintroduced to Dr. Crusher, who had been written out of the show's previous season, but brought back to do the medical jargon and parent her teenage son. Crusher asks her old friend Picard about her son and her concerns about their relationship. Picard does his best to reassure her, but Wesley's hyper-focus on his studies and lack of what she considers typical adolescent behavior concern her. How would you feel if you were a 17-year-old and the only Starfleet officer whose mother was on board? Inhibited, I suppose. Mm. But then I'm not Wesley. And if you are concerned about him, I see no evidence that there is a problem. I know, but... In a funny way, that's exactly my point. We talk, we smile, it's almost too polite. I know how difficult it was for you being away. Tell me about him. Meanwhile, Stubbs takes Wesley under his wing in his way, informing him that the burden of his genius and youth is something he recognizes as himself within the boy. Complicating Stubbs' own legacy is a worsening and unprecedented series of computer malfunctions on the ship. Stubbs attempts courtesy with Picard and his crew, but his primary, if not exclusive, concern is the success of his experiment. Eventually, Geordi tracks down the source of the malfunctions, and to Wesley's horror, it turns out to be his fault. An experiment of his own, involving nanites, microscopic robots, was left untended, and the nanites have infiltrated the Enterprise's computer core. He confesses his sin to Guinan. Picard orders the Enterprise to abandon the mission, putting even more pressure on Wesley to solve this problem he created for his would-be mentor. In the midst of Wesley's panicked search for the rogue nanites, Crusher finds herself struggling with her role as his mother, but eventually his trust in her manifests when he explains the crisis he's caused. With everything out in the open, the question becomes how to deal with the infestation of nanites, which have replicated and evolved into a rudimentary collective intelligence. 
Stubbs, naturally, wants to eradicate the nanites like pests, but Picard orders the crew to attempt a gentler method of extracting them from the computer. Stubbs isn't having it and attacks and kills a group of nanites in the computer core with gamma radiation. This unintended experiment reveals the true intelligence of the nanites as they immediately retaliate by trying to poison the bridge personnel and sabotage the ship's remaining functions. Thankfully, Data is able to establish communication with the Nanite Collective and provide a face-to-face negotiation between them, Picard, and Stubbs, who is tasked with explaining his actions. In the end, Stubbs is able to secure a planet for the Nanite civilization to continue to grow and evolve. Before being relocated, they assist the crew to repair the ship in time for Stubbs' egg to be launched. In the wake of the drama, Crusher and Guyon connect. Recall, they never had a chance to meet in Season 2 over their experiences as mothers. Elliot, I really love that you say that Wesley confessed his sins to Guinan as if she's like some kind <laughs> of religious figure. And also just like the way that she and Beverly Crusher like, you know, bond over just like their shared motherhood. That, um, and it's just, I don't know, it just has a nice kind of like divine feminine iconography vibe to it mm. that I, I just really appreciate. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, Guinan definitely has that that place on the ship she's the it's mostly the hat (laughs) it's mostly the hat let's be real about that (laughs) right if you ever feel nervous about an an audition or a job interview or something just wear a giant hat and everything will go perfectly for you um yeah good point yeah i i liked so as i mentioned so picard uh picard uh, crusher was written out of season two for a bunch of behind the scenes things which we will talk about someday but not important. What is important is she's back. And I like that the choice in the episode to reintroduce her to the audience is in this role that she has. She doesn't really do much doctoring, I guess a little bit with Stubbs, but it's mostly about her relationship with Wesley and her trying to reconcile what I assume is a fe- a little bit of guilt that she feels about having um, been away from Wesley. I mean, he's not a little kid. You know, he's a young man. He's 16, 17, 17. Yeah. What were you doing when you were 17? Probably getting into more trouble than Wesley, I can assure you. So was I. Isn't that what 17's supposed to be? Does he have many friends? Has he ever been in love? Um. Jean-Luc, I'm worried. He's come so far so fast, and since I've been back, I don't feel... His dependence. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a parent. I know you aren't either, but it makes sense to me that you have that feeling of, well, I really should have been there. This is this is important time. Yeah, I, I think all parents feel that way, regardless of like how old the kid is at some point. It gets easier when children become adults. Um, but, you know... They are always going to be, you know, little children in their parents' eyes. I think there's always a part mm-hmm. of that that's, like, just the nature of things. Uh, she has kind of a point. I mean, like, there's the, there's a stereotype that teenagers rebel. Um, and that's there's actually a good reason for that. There's a really good, solid psychological reason for that. Um, you know, in order for a child to successfully transition into being an independent person and adult, they have to separate from their parents. And that really does begin to happen in adolescence, where there's a real shift in 
a person's existential question about who they are and the role they're supposed to be playing in society. That kind of happens around adole uh, in adolescence. And that's really when children start to rebel against their parents, typically. And as much as that is uncomfortable for everybody involved, there's actually a really good psychological argument for why that is supposed to happen. Because otherwise, like a, a child is just going to remain slightly identified and tethered with their parent. You know, like infants are completely dependent on their caregivers for support and survival. Like, you know, the baby existed within its mother for nine months and then was like, you know, attached to her essentially for the first like couple of years of her life of the child's life um, just to be fed and to survive. And so there's a big bond and an identity there. And if that doesn't change, like, can you imagine an adult who hadn't like ever let go of that kind of bond with their caregiver? Like that's not a fully functional adult in society. Like there does have to be that kind of break. It's like the psychic umbilical cord has to be cut. Mm. And, and that's really what typically happens in adolescence. They are starting to figure out who they are outside of this child identity. And they're, they're trying to figure that out. And that's why adolescence is so tumultuous. Heard. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I have to admit. You know, I would like kids one day. I, I, I You know that about me. Um, and But even though it's still theoretical at this point in my life, I have some anxiety about that um, that responsibility that that probably isn't fully warranted. I mean, as you say, it's it's a parent's job to bring the child out of their dependency, not to hold on to it. It's exactly the opposite, right? But I had th that feeling of like, <laughs> I don't want to mess you up. I don't want to be the reason you don't have all these things, which. I uh, society says you, you, you need to be have and, and do and and manifest in a certain way and, and and that's that's what's hard is like yeah Wesley's kind of a nerd but he's fine yeah. right he's clearly fine <laughs> and her anxiety from an outsider's perspective is probably it, it, it's portrayed as being overblown mm -hmm. and like she's a little bit um like she's compensating for something like she's compensating for the fact that she was absent as opposed to being maybe medically objective about what his psychology looks like at this point. You can't put everything on your shoulders, Wesley. Even when you're off duty, you're on duty. Mom, you don't understand. You are a 17-year-old. I am also an acting officer, and I have responsibilities. I'm beginning to think maybe you've taken on too many responsibilities. Look, I have done everything that everyone has asked of me and more. And how can you know? You haven't even been here. I'm here now, Wesley. No, I, I hear you that sh there might be something she's overcompensating for. There may be, be some guilt that she was absent, you know, during a big time in his life. And, you know, like the difference between a 15 year old and a 17 year old is huge. And, you know, she was mm. gone. Um, so I, I can see that kind of coloring the, her own, like, you know, anxiety around Wesley and how he's doing. But I also, I don't completely disagree with her. Um, you know, I think she does bring up a good point that Wesley is kind of 
too well behaved for an adolescent and he's trying to be like this perfect star star fleet cadet and to me there's a hint of I'm gonna be what I think I'm supposed to be. I'm gonna fill this role that I see outside of myself and I'm gonna fill that in and I'm gonna be what I think is gonna be like the most successful and acceptable version of myself based on my goals. And to some extent we all do that. We all have personas which bridge the gap between who we are and our goals and then our persona kind of fills in that gap. Like it lets us do the things we want to do in a particular situation or environment or relationship. But there's so much of Wesley that I don't think he's explored or experienced. You know, it, it's even like yeah. um, Beverly saying to Picard, like, what is he actually like outside of He's his, his father's son. Role and being a good student. Honest, trusting, strong. And that's just as important for Wesley to discover and accept as it is for him to keep pursuing this, um, you know, scientific Starfleet goal that he has for himself. It's an interesting question. So Wesley was written as kind of a Gene Roddenberry stand-in character. Oh, right? I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Okay. So he's uh, like, uh, not, 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 maybe not an honest one, but an idealized one. Um, this is who I want to be. In that he's, well, yeah, he's, he's the boy genius. He knows more than ever. You remember what it's like in the first couple seasons of TNG. He's saving the ship, even though he's 14 years old um, all the time. And the Traveler comes at one point. You remember the Traveler from, we did um, Remember Me. And that was, he had, that was his second appearance. He was originally, he showed up on the ship and told Picard, not Beverly, but he told Picard. It's Wesley I wanted to speak to you about. The boy, it's best you do not repeat this to the others, especially not to the mother. He told Captain Picard a long time ago that you were very special. He and a few like him are why I travel. You have it in your power to encourage him without interfering. Are you familiar with the intricacies of what is called here music? Like Mozart. Who is a small child wrote astonishing symphonies. A genius who made music not only to be heard, but seen and felt beyond the understanding, the ability of others. Wesley is such a person, not with music but with the equally lovely intricacies of time, energy, propulsion, and the instruments of this vessel, which allow all that to be played. And that you were destined for something quite different from the rest of us. I love you. So there's definitely that piece of it where, in terms of the external factors working on Wesley and his, his choices about what he does with his time, um, in that you have people, even if he's not directly aware of what the traveler said, he, he, the adults in his life are creating this environment that's designed for him to be fast-tracked on this career path at this age, because they have been told and believe, at least, and at least um, they don't have any reason to doubt it, that this is what's best for him. And this is the first time within the show that anyone's pushing back on that in any way. Like, and what you're saying and saying, well, what else is there to you as, as a person besides this gifted potential, this wonderkin stuff? Um, and it's being put in his mother's mouth, which seems appropriate to me. But also this idea that 
having had some distance from him um, mm. is what creates, obviously he's changed in the, in the year and so is she, but it's, I think it's more the fact that she hasn't seen much of him in that time that suddenly these things come into relief. Well, it's nice to be together again. I was at Starfleet Medical for a year. I missed about two inches of him. Mm. I'm not sure I'd want my mother to be flying through space with me. Is this all this boy does, doctor, fly the ship and read? Doesn't he ever have any fun? Sure he does. Actually, most of my free time is taken up with my studies. Uh, it's interesting that you, you, you say that because I, I chafed a little bit at her view, her assumptions that one needs to be in any particular, uh, 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 any particular way at a certain age because I certainly wasn't what most 17 year olds were when I was 17 and I, I like that about myself yeah. <laughs> and I related to Wesley as a kid um, for, for that reason in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I hear you you know I, I don't think I was a typical adolescent or a 17 year old either but but then again like what is normal you know I think normal is like uh, is make-believe. I think normal is something mm-hmm. that we try to say this is what's acceptable, you know, and this is what's expected versus what is actually normal. So there, there's some, I think, nuance to the way we are thinking about what we're calling normal and is it actually normal or is it is that code for this is what we are going to accept you as, and this is what you should be mm. aiming for. And if you're not normal, then you need to change somehow. Um, so, so I do hear that. I think, I think again, it's like, it's kind of an external versus internal thing. Like, are you living into this external expectation of who you think you should be, of who other people have told you you should be and how you should act and what you should value? Or is that coming from yourself and your own internal self and values and the way that you feel like you want to be in the world? And those can look the same, but I think Mm -hmm. depending on which direction you're going, like that makes the difference because one is authentic and the other isn't. Well, let's take the implication at face value for a moment and say that Wesley is on a path that's going to lead him to be like Stubbs when he's an adult um, and is going to achieve all of these great scientific discoveries and be respected in his field or whatever. Um, he's going to have, he's, he's going to succeed in the thing that he's putting so much effort into, but it will come at the cost of his interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Your reaction to Stubbs as a person is his psychology objectionable to you ensure the safety captain or are you really talking about playing it safe in our current position when that star explodes you will get to watch your experiment from the inside out i would rather die than leave i don't believe you speak for the majority of the crew dr stubbs i know how much this means to you my dear counselor no insult intended but please turn off your beam into my soul If we do not leave in time, so be it. It's one sure way into the record books, eh? His nonchalance is studied and practiced. 
He's put his entire self-worth on the line with this experiment. He's telling the truth when he says he'd rather die than leave. What is it that has you so worried? Your single-mindedness. Your need to have this experiment work. But it will. Picard has no choice now. Your self-portrait is so practiced, so polished. And if you finally fail, I fear it will snap. Is his psychology objectionable to you in a way that would justify like actively trying to avoid that in someone you're parenting? I wouldn't say objectionable because, you know, I think as a therapist, you're trying to be very accepting of everyone that comes into your room. Um, but what I see in Stubbs is kind of a developmental trauma that happened that has basically limped him through the rest of his life about human development and how we go through child infancy and childhood and adolescence and adulthood and like what are the different things that happen throughout our lives the different phases we go through psychologically there's a lot of different theories I, in a way, I think they all are actually all happening at the same time, but you just can't capture all of the nuance mm. in one theory. It's a little bit like calculus in that way. You kind of have to like figure out one tiny bit of it and then add up quantum all Quantum the... adolescence. Yeah, quantum adolescence. Oh, that's great. Um, but, but like you kind of have to figure out like these smaller calculations and then add up all those results to get the bigger picture because you can't just do it all in one go. But there's one theory in particular that was developed by Eric Erickson, and that's called the psychosocial stages of human development. And that really gets into kind of what are the existential questions that people are wrestling with in different points in their life. And for Wesley in his adolescence, that's really an identity versus role confusion. Who am I? What is my role in society? Like he's trying to figure that out. Um, and it's a big change from childhood where he was so dependent on his parents or is on his parent in this instance and he's trying to learn how to break away from that and another part of erickson's theory is that if something goes wrong in one of those stages like if you aren't able to successfully answer that question and work through whatever the issue is that you're supposed to be working through at that point in your life you're gonna keep trying to work through it for the rest of your life and depending on what the issue is like as a therapist, you actually kind of have to go back in time and basically help the person go through that phase again, even if they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s, you know, like, oh, um, I can see like, this is something that maybe you never worked through when you were a kid. So we're going to go back and just try to do it. Um, it is kind of like, that's what's going on behind the scenes in, in this particular framework. And with Stubbs, I really wonder if something happened to him during his like early childhood phase, which the role is kind of, is there a possible trauma that happened when he was trying to figure out his competence? You know, industry versus inferiority. Like, you know, you're in school, you're in elementary school, essentially. It's like, am I good at math? Am I good at science? Are all these other people better than me? Am I good at anything? Like that's kind of what people are trying to figure out in elementary school. And for Stubbs, like I'm looking at this guy who is so focused on, I have to be this. And if I am not this, my entire identity crumbles. Like that's, that indicates to me that there's something there 
that is giving him some kind of protection from feeling how awful it feels to feel incompetent. And that indicates to me that something happened during that stage of his life around which this whole complex was built. So I don't call it question objectionable, but it is something that you can go back and look at to be like, why, why is your whole self-esteem and your self-image so wedded to this idea of you have to be amazing or else, or else you don't have any worth? Why do you think that? Mm. How can we go through, how can we like kind of go through that part of your own development again? So hopefully you have a more balanced and healthy relationship to your own sense of competency so it's not so unbalanced and fragile yeah right <clears throat> yeah and the way you describe it feels very much like it could be a part of wesley's future at least at this point in the show um where he could go down that path what's hard i think for me is how much how sincerely wesley at this point loves what he's doing like it's not as though like yeah he's doing all these studies and things but there's like this experiment in this episode for example is something he decided to do for fun like he didn't have to do it for anyone else's um to meet anyone else's expectations but his own what wesley really struggles with here is divulging his mistake i'm scared Guinan. I think that everything that's been going wrong might be my fault. Are you saying there are nanites loose? Two of them, that's all. I just wanted to see how they would interact and function in tandem. So you made better nanites? I was pulling an all-nighter to collect my final data. I fell asleep. It seems as though being able to reconcile all of the expectations that he has for himself and then come from, from the outside with the reality that he fucked up yeah <laughs> and it kind of severely like his little experiment almost destroyed the enterprise <laughs> it's just a science project you know a doctor friend once said the same thing to me frankenstein was his name even though they they saved the day in the end it also gave rise to an entire civilization of sentient microscopic robots like holy shit <laughs> um that's go a lot go home yeah. To me, that's the part of Wesley that feels the most 17 as opposed to this other advanced thing. And that's why it seems like Guinan immediately sort of gets to the center of his psychology in that conversation they have. Because when it comes to when it comes to the interpersonal parts of his life, Wesley is very much uh, a normal kid. Yeah. <laughs> Who is awkward and doesn't know what he's doing and is afraid of getting in trouble. Everyone expects me to be perfect. I expect me to be perfect. If I'm not that, what is at risk? You know, and if anything, it was a good corrective emotional experience. I'm going to use that term that it was okay that he messed up in this instance, despite how big a fuck up that was like, he wasn't shamed for it. You know, like the, the worst he was, what he was afraid would happen didn't happen. And yeah. that in and of itself is very therapeutic for you to realize that like the worst case scenario is not what's going to happen. And maybe in the future that can allow me to be vulnerable and to tell people like, Hey, I, 
I made a mistake and I need your support. Um, so in that way, I think it worked out really well. Next, take another look at the Emissary's son, Jake Sisko, in the third season episode DS9 called Explorers, written by Hilary J. Bader and Renee Echeverria, directed by Cliff Bull and airing in 1995. After enduring the beginning of the ill-fated Bashir Lita romance, Jadzia steps in to subvert this development for a different B-plot altogether. Julian's old classmate, the valedictorian in his graduating class and CMO of the USS Lexington, will be arriving on DS9 in a few weeks. This causes feelings in our young doctor. Meanwhile, Ben Siska returns from Bajor to his quarters to greet his son, sporting a new look and blueprints for ancient Bajorian lightships that, according to legend, use solar sails to travel faster than light, all the way from Bajor to Cardassia some 800 years ago. Jake thinks this is far-fetched, but Ben intends to find out for himself, as he's going to build a working lightship from the old designs. Like every weekend warrior, Sisko insists on using the ancient techniques to build the ancient technology. His equipment requests spark a minor debate between O'Brien and Kira regarding the likelihood of these solar ships actually achieving what they are said to have done. I just don't see how this ship could have made the trip. They didn't even have replicators back then. They would have had to store their air supply. Well, maybe they recycled it somehow, used some kind of photosynthetic blend. It may be. You sound just like a Cardassian. I beg your pardon? They have denied the possibility of ancient contact for decades because they cannot stand the idea of Bajor having interstellar flight before they did. With all due respect, Major, you're beginning to sound like a Romulan. A Romulan? There is no piece of technology in existence they don't claim they invented before everyone else. After a little construction montage, Ben guilt trips, I mean convinces his son to join him on the verifying voyage. Part of what convinces Jake to join Ben is the contents of a letter he receives from New Zealand about which we are kept in the dark for the moment. Before the launch, we check in with Bashir, who resents feeling second best to his former classmate. Sisko also gets a call from Dukat, of all people, who tries to dissuade Ben from attempting his little mission. Anyway, the light ship launches, complete with a manual deployment of the solar sails on a spaceship. The Siskos encounter a few obstacles on their way, losing a couple of sails to space anomalies, and they do a little father-son bonding over the news that Jake has been accepted to the Pen Pennington School to pursue a career in writing, but has decided to defer the invitation. Jake says he's worried about leaving Ben alone, still an unattached widower. He agrees to reconsider the apprenticeship if Ben agrees to a blind date. Back home, Bashir feels snuffed by his classmate, Dr. Lenze, who doesn't even recognize him when she arrives on DS9, stabbing him right in the fragile ego. Miles comforts his friend by getting him drunk and singing favorite pub crawl tunes from the British monarchy. The next morning, Bashir confronts Lensa and clears up a strange misunderstanding between them. I thought you were in Dorian. As well as engaging in fourth wall breaking series mission statements. In a freak accident on their trip, the solar sails catch some magic tachyons which push the wooden vessel to warp speed, yet somehow the Cisco's aren't a couple of pancakes on the stern. Even more than that, despite their technical failures, the Tachyon Eddies push the ship all the way to Cardassia, thus proving the Bajoran legends true, again. In a final surprise, Dukat is present to welcome Ben to Cardassia, complete with space fireworks. So I told you I related a bit to Wesley uh, in our previous episode growing up, yeah. but O'Brien's description of Bashir... You're not an in-between kind of guy. What do you mean? Well, people either love you or hate you. 
Really? Uh, really hit close to home for me, I have to say. Are you a not in between kind of guy? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the person to make that assessment, but it feels like something someone has told me slash should tell me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> seriously, it, it was a it was a fun little dynamic, the two of them. I didn't quite get the singing of Jerusalem as a as a as a bonding experience. I don't know. You and I are trick musicians. That 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 tune has very specific connotations. We have built Jerusalem. I'll say this if nothing else. Colmini is really good at acting drunk. Like really good. It's hard to do. There is so much in just everything that you just said. Um, it is a nice little just like package of like things to unpack. Um, yay! No, I, yeah, I wonder about the choosing Jerusalem as a tune. Maybe it was just something that like they both knew. You know, like sometimes, sometimes I think the, these things are not as thought out as any of us Trekkies would <laughs> like them to be. Everything must be intentional and make sense. Oh, wouldn't that be great if we lived in a world where that was true? Um, even a make even a make believe world where that was true. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I also really appreciated that scene between the two of them, especially because like. You know, O'Brien hated Bashir for such a long time, yeah. and eventually they came together, and I thought that was very sweet. He's like, no, I, I really do not hate you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other part of this B-plot that uh, is worth talking about a little bit, there's, I mentioned the fourth wall breaking scene. Um, yeah, with... I, that went over my head. What fourth wall was broken? Aha. Okay. Uh, so... We have to put ourselves back in our mid-90s uh, mode here in, in terms of what's been on the air. Uh, okay. But so there's, I generally like this episode, but as usual, there's a, what I what I tend to see in these DS9 stories often is this um, petulance, might be the right word, coming from the writers regarding their kind of black sheep status in the track franchise like they always want to zig when 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 track used to zag um and the scene with lenza uh bashir's classmate who's now the cmo of the lexington um is the conversation they have in the end don't take this the wrong way but there were times when i regretted not taking your assignment i really envy the opportunity you have to work on that kind of long-term project on the Lexington, it was collect your samples and then on to the next system. Which is very clearly about, like, the Enterprise on TNG and TOS went to a planet every week, and they had their adventure, and they told their story, then they left, and they don't talk about it ever again. That's not right. totally true, but that's this. it's the episodic format, right? Um, whereas DS9 is literally stationary, Right, it's a space station, and so and Bashir talks about how, how he has these experiments and these science, these medical questions that he goes on for weeks and weeks and revisits and goes back to, and that's them being like, no, we're we're here to stay and delve into the developing plot line, not the week to week stuff, and isn't that so much better? <laughs> okay, um, now that you say that, I can totally see it. Yeah, it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, this isn't as good as I thought it would be. Okay, I can see that now. Yeah. yeah, which I, again, I generally like this episode. I think DS9's long-term storytelling is really good for the most part. Um, it feels a little try-hard to me, and it takes me out of the moment personally. I'm like, okay, we get it. 
we get it. It's, it's ironic putting it with a Bashir story, who is a character who's guilty of that kind of behavior of trying too hard. It's also interesting that the the writers kind of show their cards in a couple different ways in this episode. Like not only is this like this conversation between the two doctors a clear allusion to be like as a kind of meta conversation between the the various franchises and the various writer rooms. But you know, I think about the scene with Cisco and Jake on the solar ship and Ben has just read Jake's story and then says in a few places, you're writing about things you haven't actually experienced. And they're on a spaceship. <laughs> right. The writers writing about a thing which is impossible, saying, putting in their script, you can't write about things that you haven't actually experienced. Yeah, that's, it's almost too clever not to be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, I really enjoyed the dynamic between the Cisco's here. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I chose the episode is that I, I think it's a really enjoyable look at fatherhood and just um, an admirable uh, portrayal of, of that dynamic. You know, Avery Brooks in particular was very adamant to the writing staff, the primarily white writing staff, that if he's going to be a black single father on TV in the 1990s, it is going to be a positive portrayal because that was not something he, he felt, I think rightly so, was seen enough. I had mentioned in our Riza episode that I didn't mm. like the fact that Patrick Stewart was having this behind the scenes push on his character traits. Um, and you had mentioned that sometimes the actors bring positive things to the table. And I think this is a good example of that where Avery Brooks is bringing something really necessary and positive to the character of Ben Sisko. Yeah, I remember um, in the first season, I think it was it was the episode where um, there was that like language virus and it was kind of like the Tower of Babel. No one could understand each other. It's called Babel. Yeah, that's Babel. Yeah. Great. Good. Look, I have a tiny microcosm of the like encyclopedic knowledge that you do. Tiny, <laughs> tiny bit. Well, I know in that episode, it was really important for Avery Brooks to show just the physical intimacy and closeness between um, Ben and Jake in that scene. Like, yeah. he really wanted to establish that kind of parental relationship right away. And and I think that's really sweet, especially given the context of the time in which the show is being made. And representation is really important. So yes. I'm glad that there's a good, I'm glad that he felt so strongly that this needed to be seen. And so here we are now, Jake's no longer a little kid. He's roughly the same age as Wesley um, in our uh, our TNG episode. There's actually a lot of similarities between the, the Cisco's and the Crushers in this way, right? Where we have one parent who died when yeah. the child was very young and then left with a single parent um, in Starfleet trying to trying to raise their child. And what's what's different here and that's kind of interesting in terms of what how that plays into the relationship is that the line that you mentioned about Cisco being critical of his son's writing, which is very realistic. It's like even if you're if you have if you have a talent for writing or anything, when you're 16, 17, you're not going to be particularly like good at it. It's not going to it's not you can't write a great novel probably. <laughs> um uh, until you've done it a few times, until you've had practice, no matter how talented you are. So you really think it was good, huh? I think it shows a lot of promise. The way in which Cisco is dealing with his child's budding talent 
and how that plays into his interpersonal his personal life as opposed to his professional life i think is an interesting contrast because you know jake definitely he goes on lots of dates is very popular with with ladies and um has his friendship with nog and is chummy with the the rest of the crew like he definitely is not wesley in that respect yeah um doesn't have that awkwardness yeah you're right jake has a lot more interpersonal savviness than definitely wesley does and and to some extent to it that his father does you know i think jake has mm. a much more a much more complex and strong social network than than his dad does you know he has great relationships with like his bridge crew but that's kind of it and i think it's really interesting that jake now having the opportunity to kind of like go off on his own and break up this dynamic duo that they've been, you know, since the, um, his mom died. Like, he almost sees that, like, hey, my dad doesn't have what I have. How can I, how can I help him get it? It's not me I'm worried about. It's you. Me? Well, if I go, you'll be all alone. Well, I appreciate you thinking about me, Jake. But please don't turn down this opportunity on my account. I'll have plenty of people to keep me company. As I think about it, so we, we never had the sense in TNG, almost never, that Beverly felt like she had to compensate for Jack's absence in Wesley's life. Like she did her best. She was like we, like we just saw, she was maybe worried about certain aspects of his development, both as a mother and as a doctor, but she wasn't trying to overburden him or like put men in his life to take up that role necessarily. Whereas Jake seems to feel like his father without him, without Jake in his father's life, there's going to be this missing piece in, in his dad's life. And I wonder if that's not a reflection of the way Jake handled Jennifer's loss and or sorry, the way uh, Ben handled Jennifer's loss, where Ben felt like he had to be double the parent mm. um, for Jake's benefit. And he was, and Ben's been a really attentive father. But because of that, Jake now senses or has like adopted that and is reflecting that parenting style back to his dad. For, for me, this, this dynamic between Jake and Ben borders on problematic. It's a parent's job to take care of their child. Um, and, but so often parents, and I'm, I'm not saying this is exactly the situation in like Ben and Jake's case, but so often parents don't have the emotional maturity to take care of themselves or their children. And the children end up taking care of the parents. And that can be really problematic. It gets more complicated when you start to take in different cultural values. In Western Anglo-Saxon culture, we are a little bit more individualistic. We think that like the, you know, children should just go off and never take care of the parents. The parents should have all the resources to be able to take care of their entire life themselves um, moving forward. Whereas in like more collectivist cultures, like there is this sense of, no, you take care of your elders, you give back. There's like a little bit more reciprocity in that kind of relationship. And mm. it's important to honor those like cultural differences and values without saying like one is right or wrong. 
Um, but you just have to know which one you're which one you're signing up for. But regardless, there can still be this problematic dynamic where the parents put the children in a position to take care of them instead of the other way around. And that really hinders the child's development. And it's something that I think I wish more people were aware of. Like, it's really, really common for children to end up taking care of their parents emotionally. Like, it's way more common than it should be. And the reason this dynamic with Jake and Ben is borderline problematic to me is just because Jake is 17. And that that's a really tricky transition. And because you do ideally enter into a phase of your life where you're not dependent on your parents anymore. You don't need them to take care of you. Hopefully they're not trying to take care of you. Um, you know, cause like, I think we all have had that, ex like some of us have had that experience of just like mom, dad, back off. Like I'm an adult <laughs> back off, back off. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you don't know. Yeah. It's like right on the edge of like, how much is Jake trying to, parent Ben in this moment and is that appropriate or not given like where he is developmentally I'd feel a lot better if you had someone you know so someone special like a girlfriend I see well, you gotta make time for these things I, I cannot believe that I'm getting advice about women from my son <laughs> oh, don't think of me as your son right now just think of me as another guy would it be more appropriate if Jake were a little bit older, like if Jake were say 25 and he's like, dad, I need you to go on a date. I don't like you being alone in the house or whatever. Is that, that, that to me, if I saw that in a depiction on, on a TV show, I wouldn't, I, that wouldn't raise any red flags for me. Yeah. Um, I hear you where he's in this, like if Jake were 14 still and saying these things to his dad, it's like, this is not appropriate. Why are you, yeah, this is, this is, you shouldn't be thinking about things this way, but. Yeah, I think if Jake were a little older, I wouldn't feel as uncomfortable, but you know, Jake is also, mm -hmm. he's still living with his dad. He yeah. is considering whether or not to move out based on what he thinks is going to be best for his dad versus what's going to be best for him. And, mm -hmm. and there's, that's where it starts to get a little murky and a little problematic in my mind. I see. Yes. <clears throat> Which is the parenting, your parent part. It's not, it's not just looking out for um, Ben's best interests as, as anyone who loves another person would. It's, it's about more than that. It's about taking responsibility for their well-being in a way that a parent should at a certain, during certain stages of development. Yeah. As a parent, I think you sign up for making sacrifices for the well-being of your child. Like you kind of ideally, when you're, you decide to become a parent, you agree to this. Some people, not everyone does, but they say like, I'm going to prioritize the well-being of my child, even if that means I have to make some sacrifices or I don't always get what I want. Like, that's what you sign up for, like, ideally. But when the child is saying, like, hey, I might have to give up what's best for me in order for my parents to actually be more okay. And again, this gets more complicated when you are dealing with different cultures that have different values. But from my perspective and my understanding that Ben and Jake live in a similar cultural value system that I do, to see Jake potentially not doing what is best for him, you know, making that kind of sacrifice for his parent, 
Like, it's, that's hard. It's gray. I'm not, it's, it's really hard to say if it's right or wrong, but like, I can tell I'm uncomfortable. We wrap up with a look at Deanna Troy's and Will Riker's daughter, Kestra, in our first look at Star Trek Picard. Nepenthe aired in 2020 as part of the first season. It was written by Samantha Humphrey and Michael Chabon and directed by Doug Arianoski. We learn in a flashback that Gerardi had been questioned by Commodore O weeks before she joined Picard in his would-be mission. More than that, she was given the impending galactic doom knowledge via mind meld and given a specific assignment while accompanying Picard. In the present, she and the remaining passengers on the Sirena plan their rendezvous with Picard and avoid the Romulans. Rafi does her best to comfort Agnes as she reels from her memories and conflicted feelings about her mission. Ironically, Rio suspects Rafi of being the double agent in their midst. Despite her fear, Agnes takes a neurotoxin to disable the tracker in her system, which allows the Romulans to track them. It also puts her in a coma. On the cube, Nerissa executes the XBs in front of Hugh to torture him for the whereabouts of Picard and Soji. Eventually, she kills Hugh outright, despite Elnor's efforts to protect him. Those whereabouts are a planet called Nepenthe, where Soji and Picard materialize. They are greeted by a teenage girl, Kestra, who instantly takes a shine to Soji. Soji, for her part, is reeling from the revelations about her identity and android nature. But enough of that. Picard is here to reunite with Kestra's parents, Troy and Riker, who have made this planet their family home. The Rikers offer Picard and Soji refuge and respite from their Romulan and Starfleet pursuers. Kestra and Soji continue to bond. The girl's wistful descriptions of Data, Soji's father after a fashion, seem to help her psychological transition and acceptance. Well, he was always trying to be more human. He could do all these, these amazing things, but all he ever really wanted to do was like, have dreams and tell jokes and like, learn how to ballroom dance. Deanna and Picard catch up a little bit during which we learn that she and Will had another child, a son called Thaddeus, who died of a rare condition. As it happens, that condition would have been curable if not for the synthetic lifeform band that undergirds this series' plot. Riker is able to discern the backstory behind their visit, despite Picard's desire to keep their purpose a secret and not endanger Riker's family. Both Troy and Riker encourage Picard to engage with Soji as a parent of a traumatized teenager and get over his single-minded arrogance over the fallout from his actions. Over dinner, Picard is vulnerable with Soji, explaining the complicated relationship between his guilt, his feeling for Data, and his responsibility for her and her sister. Listen to the timbre of my voice. Feel the fluctuations of my heart rate. Note the dilation of my pupils. Soji... You can trust me. With Kestra's help, the group is able to fix a location for Soji's homeworld. Before Soji and Picard are picked up by the now tracker-free Serena, Kestra encourages Soji to likewise treat Picard as a surrogate parent moving forward. So we might rename this episode uh, From Fuckboy to Fatherhood, the Will Riker story. <laughs> that is That's perfect and so it. inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, this is the, Picard's a difficult series. I'll just, I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. I don't think it's quite found itself yet. And I don't love it. Uh, this episode, however, has a lot of really strong moments 
especially centered around this family dynamic, I really, really like the portrayal of the, the Rikers, I guess we'll call them, um, the, the three of them and, and, their, and their home and this, this hearth and, 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 and hearth and family kind of uh, in the woods yeah. <laughs> uh, thing, that we, thing that we have going on here. And it is especially heartwarming for fans of TNG, um, like me, uh, to see where Troy and Riker, honestly, wh- wh- where they end up because they have this really, it's something I want to talk to you about in another episode um, w- reg- the way Troy and Riker are because it's, you know, late 80s, early 90s TNG uh, and these two have this past relationship where they're so connected they can have like occasional telepathy with each other. Do you remember what I taught you, Imzadi? Can you still sense my thoughts? Very intimate, and yet at no point in the show do they act- are they actually together, right? Mm-hmm. They 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 kind of date here and there, and they maybe have sex casually all the time. It's implied they they're kind of fucking throughout the whole seven years on the ship, but they're also with a lot of other people, obviously, mm-hmm. both of them, and yet they're also very close to each other and protective of each other. And, you know, Imzadi, right? That's their, yeah. the Bezoid word for beloved. And then the fact that all of that leads to them eventually getting married in, in Nemesis and then now having, um, having a family and, and being an old married couple, it's kind of the last place you'd, you'd expect them to end up, but it's very sweet. Yeah, it is really sweet. And it's definitely a, like, you know, you're not, guts and glory forever you know it, it's like yeah. it's so strange it, it's strange and wonderful to just see like this completely different life that they're living on this planet but they're also they seem really happy and really at peace yeah. and it's like yeah like different phases of your life look different and you know like neither of us are parents yet but i've definitely heard that when you have kids you know your priorities change and things that you never would have considered before suddenly are like completely obvious. Yes, of course, I'm going to leave Starfleet and go to a planet that might help my son have a better quality of life or even save him. You know, and like mm-hmm. the fact, like that's a no-brainer once you have a kid. That before that, they, you know, would you have seen them, you know, growing tomatoes? Well, I, it's interesting because. I hadn't thought about it quite in that light. The the fact that they moved to Nepenthe for for Thaddeus for his to try to help him with his condition that eventually killed him. Because so in Nemesis the, the movie, um, Riker is finally given his own command, and Troy goes with him to be. And we see a little bit of their life as the uh, it's it, Will is the captain of of the Titan yeah. um, in Lower Decks, and that's something we were introduced to in like the second season i think of tng maybe even the first season very early on it's like we want to put Riker in command of a ship mm-hmm. and he's been doing it for 15 years he's in this arrested development and like finally he's given a ship and he and roy get married and he's got everything he's ever wanted he finally gets it and they have a kid and the kid has this condition which is like okay well i guess we're not in starfleet anymore officially right yeah um and so they move and their lives completely change as you say and that's that's quite that's quite a statement about the effect that parenthood has on your 
priorities and your perspective. Yeah, I, you know, there was part of this episode that almost felt like fan fiction to me, like in a really satisfying way. <laughs> I'm just like, look, sure. I have a kid! Ah! You know, and and she's like this wild child, which is, yeah. I really, really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, yeah little, was... little Easter eggs, in case you didn't catch them. So Kestra is the name of Deanna's sister who died. Okay. From the episode Dark Page, I don't know if you remember that episode. Loxana, her mom, reveals that Deanna had a little sister, or, sorry, an older sister, who was killed. I just found out I had a sister I never knew. Oh, Kestra. My precious one. And, and it has this, there's this whole, we'll, we'll talk about it someday. It's a no, I, I vaguely remember Loxana that episode. episode now, yeah. So Kestra's named after her, which okay. is a, a nice little Easter egg. Uh, and then Thaddeus is named after Will Riker's ancestor okay. this is a really deep cut where will Riker had a, a an ancestor who was in uh the civil the american civil war named thaddeus Riker, and it's brought up in a voyager episode that is colonel thaddeus Riker. after he was wounded at pine mountain they used to call him old iron boots and the soldier beside him he carried your wounded ancestor back from the front line without q there would have been no william t Riker at all oh and lest i forget Without Q, the Borg would have assimilated the Federation. But it's, yeah, fan fiction. Definitely. Um, do you just know that, or did you research that for this episode? It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I might, I might have a Wesley Crusher issue. Ah! But too late for that now. Please finish what you were saying. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's really satisfying, you know, and, and a lot of Picard is, it is fan service, you know, like, I, and I think that's one of why it doesn't quite stand up on its own because just so much of it is like scratching a sentimental itch for people who loved TNG, but in doing that, it doesn't quite have its own legs to stand on. And, and it's really disappointing to like see these characters, you know, and love, and then parts of it are really satisfying. And then other parts are just like, what's, what's happening right now? What? Okay. Fully agree. Yeah, if they had managed to write a really compelling story, like for these new characters, um, and then also had all this kind of TNG nostalgia, that would have been such a great blending of those two sentiments. But as it is, you kind of have to take what you can get. Yeah, here's here's hoping season three is like you know is going to be better. <laughs> I also I really loved the betrayal of of Kestra and Thaddeus. You know, even though we hear about Thaddeus versus meeting him directly. I I love the fact that these kids are so creative and have such incredibly sophisticated imaginations and that um, Will and Deanna are just really supportive of that. Like the fact that they learned multiple made up languages, like that's, that's really cool. Like some parents would have been like, put away this nonsense. And they just were like, tell me more. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to tell me everything that is interesting you. Well, yeah, it's, it's a different, it's a different take on what we saw with Wesley and Jake, where there's this um, manifestation of some sort of genius or some sort of talent. Um, and in Wesley's case, it's like, well, you are now going to be Starfleet, Von Wunderkind, uh, yeah. Starfleet scientist genius. And in Jake's case, it's not the same. It's, it's, it's this, um, you're going to be a writer despite the fact that your dad thought you were going to be in Starfleet and that's okay. Uh, and then in Kestra's and Thaddeus's case, it's, it's this whole other thing where it's not really about what it 
it doesn't have to mean anything more than this gives you, this makes you happy. And yeah. this is an outlet for your creativity. And that's enough to, to be validated. Yeah. And, you know, I think with Wesley and with Jake, they were very aware of what their, what the adults in their lives wanted them to be. And I don't really get that for Kestra. Like, I'm not sure what Will and Deanna want for her. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure there are some things, but they're mostly keeping that to themselves and letting her become who she is on her terms without them saying, you should be this or you should be that. And I think that's really, really healthy and really wonderful to see. Yeah, it reminds me of the Dr. Finn quote from our, our Orville um, episode a while back where she says that the most important thing we can do right now is listen Topa's gonna have to guide us obviously we're not dealing seemingly not dealing with a transgender um child here but we are having a similar attitude from triker and uh, triker from roy and, and roy and triker that's there we that's that that's who they are now okay roy and <laughs> triker great and, great <laughs> from riker and troy regarding their kids where it's they're letting them show them who they are and who they are, at least, you know, what we see of Kestra is wonderful. What a wonderful child. We should all be so lucky to have a a daughter like that um, if we have kids. And I I guess that takes me to then the question of what then the relationship is between her and Soji. So Soji is technically three, but Riker says to Picard that... Now you're dealing with a teenager, more or less. That can be an extremely humbling experience. He he recognizes that as a parent, um, and Troy confirms this in her as a role as a, as a as a as a psychologist, and that's what finally gets Picard to get through to her. I know I had been saying, oh, I've only uh, the only shows I haven't watched are the original series and Enterprise. That's not true. I haven't finished Picard. <laughs> I didn't love it when I started it and haven't returned, but I will get there. I will get there. Um, I will earn my have watched all of Star Trek Girl Scout badge. <laughs> um, it's a relatively new concept that children think differently than adults, which sounds really obvious when I say it. Like I like to mm. me, I'm like, of course, of course, that's true. But really, like a hundred years ago, like people didn't think that. They just thought the children were mini adults, and it's been. It's been one of the biggest changes and revolutions in child psychology to realize that they think differently than adults. The way they reason and understand the world is different, and it changes like throughout their development. Like It takes a long time for an adult to think like an adult, and kids just have a very different way of uh, understanding the world. And I think about Picard trying to talk to Soji like she was Data. When I met your sister, she had just been activated by the Romulans' first attempt on her life. Until then, like you, she believed she was human. After the attack, she discovered that she possessed extraordinary defensive capabilities like you. In Nemesis, when we see kind of like the other version of Data, who has a kind of a childlike understanding of the world, that like he hadn't... Yeah. yeah, yeah, before. Like, he wasn't really a fully formed Data. Um, oh, sorry, his name is B4. <laughs> B4. Yeah. That's so cute. 
But um, Soji has a lot more comple- complexity, like psychologically and emotionally. She's much more human than Data or B4 were. And I think it's really telling that once Picard started to talk to her like she was a teenager, was when he actually started to be able to connect with her. Before your sister came to me, I was haunted by my past. And marking time, wasting my life. But now, I'm alive, and I have a mission, which means there's not a hell of a chance that you or anyone else can stop me. He can't talk to her like she's Data, like she's an adult. Like You have to kind of meet the kid where they are and understand the way that they process information and the way that their brain works. Because otherwise, like you're asking them to do something they just can't do, and it's frustrating for everybody. And this isn't the first time Picard has been asked to step into a parenting role, despite the fact that he's not a parent. I mean, we already talked about um, his Im- implanted um, family from the inner yeah. light, but there's there's an episode in season four where he has to temporarily adopt this kid, this human kid, um, and uh, suddenly human. That's what it's called. The episode. He's always had this quasi parental relationship with Data. Um, or at the very least, he's giving him um, the, the, the facts of life. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. He's presenting himself as a model for Data's human development, which Data remarked on. Um, much like how Data was given those memories of the colonists from Omicanthita as a way Sung thought to jumpstart his development as a person, um, although for different reasons, Soji has this implanted backstory yeah. where she believes that she's well, 20, how old she is, um, supposed to be. She and Dodge, her, her twin sister, have this whole memory bank of being little kids and developing. So yes, how old, the, the age that she appears to be, which is at most 20, um, is the age that she has the psychological capacity for at least based on the memories she's been given so in that respect I, I that might that must be why Riker has this instinct that this is how you need to treat her yeah yeah she's Despite not she, she's not age. done cooking yeah she's not done cooking yeah. essentially that whole backstory has been shattered in yeah. that she's she's been gaslit by by Narek and Narissa um and her time on the board cube leading up to this uh, in or you know they're obviously using her to get information about this synth home planet and all that um but the result is that by these people who did not in any way have her best interests at heart um destroyed her sense of self yeah in in pursuit of this end and so now she doesn't have trust in anybody let alone this stranger and so she suspects picard of being the same kind of authority figure that she's just been betrayed by i don't know him at all he told me he was a friend of the man he called my father. But you don't believe him? I don't believe anyone. Which is what Troy recognizes um, yeah. when, she, when, when, she, when she's like, You had it coming. Easy there, Imzadi. Do you have any idea what that young woman's been through? What she's going through now? What the Romulans did to her? Her capacity to trust was a flaw in her programming. 
what I need to be. You need to be Jean-Luc Picard, compassionate, patient, curious. The way she has been treated is what she's going to expect from all those future relationships. Like, we humans expect that what has happened to us will happen again, which is why if something bad happens to us, we, accept, we expect something bad to happen again. And we, we need, again, that corrective emotional experience to realize other things are possible so that we have a wider catalog of experiences that we think are possible for us. It's not all just betrayal, you know, and a shattered ego and a shattered experience. You've heard the saying, like, humans are social creatures. It's kind of, like, hardwired yeah. into us. And, and one of the ways that is explained is through attachment theory, which is that we, as infants, create attachments to our caregivers and the people around us because that's how we ensure our, our survival. Um, like, babies literally could not survive unless someone took care of them. And so babies have these instincts and these behaviors that create attachments, you know? It's just like, oh, you're so cute. Like, there's, there's, there's a real reason that that is happening. It's not just, it's not just cultural. Like, babies have, aren't able to regulate themselves emotionally. Like, they, they physically need another body to help them calm down when they are really emotionally overwhelmed. And that's how children learn emotional regulation is kind of by learning from the people around them. And if the people around them can't emotionally regulate, the child can never emotionally regulate. And like that leads to a whole sort of slew of problems. And so I think about Soji, you know, like she's this android and she's also as human, I think, as like a non-human can be. And what she had was she had this attachment experience that felt real to her that was absolutely shattered and so in that way she doesn't know if people are going to hurt her or help her and in that uncertainty it's it's easier for her to just stay away from everybody as a means of self-protection got it yeah that to me sounds like parenting advice right is in, in terms of breaking it down in this in this cataloged way is you don't want your child to develop unhealthy attachments and you want to create positive associations for them which is what Picard is having to do clear difference between 1989 TNG episode, 1995 DS9 episode, 2020 Picard episode in the way parenting is depicted. Mm -hmm. And I think that's about more than just it being different writers on different series. I, I do think there's something in the zeitgeist in the sort of popular conception of what parenting is that has changed over the years and over the decades. And we are dealing in these episodes, I think, with positive examples of parenting. However, the way in which each of them, including the, the most recent ones, might be written, given our more nuanced, developed understanding of parenting today, 
I think would would change. So what I what I want to know is in each of these cases, if you, Elizabeth, at least, were brought on to into the writers' room before these episodes were finished yeah. as a consultant to say, hey, we would like Beverly, Ben, Troy, and Riker to all be ideal models of of parenthood. What should we change in the way we've written these characters? So let's start with Beverly. Actually, I'm going to like take a step back and like tell the writers how they need to reconceptualize something in general really quick. So Sure. The idealized parent is really weaponized against parents these days. I think parents have a lot of pressure to like do things absolutely perfectly and not fuck up their kids. Like for some reason like those are the two options. Either you're going to do it perfectly <laughs> or you are going to fuck up your child. Um <laughs> and I just want to like say though that's not true in in psychological jargon there is the term is literally a good enough parent and good enough can be like two-thirds of the time you get it right you don't have to get it right a hundred percent of the time or then your child is like so fragile that they're just going to shatter and if anything if that's what you think is true that's what your child is going to become and and so I just want to say, like, you don't have, like, the idealized parent or the ideal parent can be relaxed a little bit. You just have to be good enough. The ch your child needs to understand that you will be there for them, that you can help them, that you can help them get their needs met most of the time. And, and any, if anything, like, when, when you do fuck up, that is also the process of the child learning how to start to do that for themselves. Like the parent shouldn't always be the one taking care of the child. Eventually the child has to learn how to take care of themselves. That's part of the process is children have everything externalized at the beginning. They have to be regulated by another person. They have to be taken care of by another person. They're completely dependent on their caregivers. And over the course of your lifetime, you start to take those things which once were externally provided for you and you internalize those structures so that you can take care of yourself. And that, that is the process of human development in a nutshell. And, and so it's what kind of external structures do you have around you to internalize? Are they helpful? Are they harmful? Are they constraining you or are they giving you the space for you to bloom so so just wanted to that's my soapbox i'm gonna step down now i really appreciate that yeah, yeah. that's good there's also like that buddhist idea of like life is suffering like <laughs> your 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 child is gonna every child every person is gonna have suffering and tragedy in their life and no parent can shield their child from that completely if they do that's actually bad um what was your original question? Can you say it again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it when you get on the soapbox. It's, it's, it's someone besides me should. It's good. It's um, the well, first I'll say, uh, I think your point is really well taken. So I don't, I don't want to overstate the question. I mean, well, it, it, what occurred to me as as you were explaining that was that Buddhist idea that you mentioned about life being suffering does run up against the Star Trek ideal, mm. which is that it doesn't have to be. Life doesn't necessarily have to be suffering. And so we were stuck in a bit of a liminal space there. 
However, I think, you know, all three families in our episodes today dealt, have the, uh, a death um, looming over. So obviously, <laughs> um, suffering is not totally abated mm-hmm. in the Roddenberry in future. Um, my question, which I'm going to rephrase to more, to, to, to better adhere itself to um, your well-taken point about not requiring perfect parenting and not letting that the, the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you were to be consulted about the depiction of the four parents that we see in these episodes, beginning with Beverly Crusher, what might you suggest be different in terms of the way she mothers Wesley in mm. the episode this week? I think it goes back to this idea of, are you imposing your idea of who your child should be on them? Or are you letting them develop on their own? You know, where where their inclinations and interests and personality want to take them. And, and I think as the series goes, like, it eventually gets there. Like, Kestra, I think, is has this a lot of open possibility. Like, I don't really see Will or Deanna imposing ideas of like, you should act this way on her. Behold a wild girl of the woods. Nicely done. You cut out the venom sacs. Nope, I left them in so we can all spew black bile and die. But I do see that with Jake and Wesley a little bit with, um, with their parents, this idea of this is what is best for you versus what are you interested in? What do you want? How can I support you? How can I help you figure out who you are? You know, and how can I help? And how can I celebrate that? Getting back to your question, I think with Bever- with Beverly and Wesley specifically, in general, like I wish, I wish there had been more room for Wesley to be more than the Wunderkind science child. You know, I really think other parts of his personality and personhood were not as nurtured as that and so Mm -hmm. that can lead like stubs you know like you're really advanced and sophisticated in other ways and really immature and underdeveloped in other ways and like we all should strive to be a well-rounded holistic person versus these kind of like caricatures of I'm really really good at this one thing and I don't know how to have a conversation with another person yeah it almost makes me wish Picard had told Beverly about what the traveler told him Mm. where he was like hey this alien thinks your son is like the the sci-fi Mozart and give Beverly the opportunity to say well that's nice I I, I love that he's so intelligent and gifted and, and has so much potential, but I want to make sure he has access to all the different pieces of himself and yeah. room to, to explore all of them. Which, in fairness to, to the series, you know, he, Wesley ends up in a very different place <laughs> than yeah. you'd expect. Now you be sure and dress warmly on those other planes of existence. So somewhere along the line, whether it was entirely Beverly's doing or not, um, or partially so, he, he did find other parts of himself. So uh, that's that, that's a good thing to see. Uh, let's move on to the Cisco's then. Mm-hmm. So um, again, uh, the, I, I'm not critical of even maybe as much as you are of Ben's parenting style, g- given the fact so given the fact that Wesley 
not only had this potential, but like the crew in the early seasons of TNG are all like giving him all these scientific responsibilities and making him an acting ensign. Um, All in because it's like, well, this is what you are going to be. When Jake tells Ben he doesn't want to be in Starfleet, which happens before this episode, um, Ben accepts it. He's surprised. Um, And disappointed. Like, be real about that. I think he is disappointed, but he doesn't... It doesn't seem to me like he really lays that at Jake's feet. He he accepts Jake's choice. Dad, I don't want to join Starfleet. Starfleet is too much, like you. I need to find what's me. It's your life, Jake. You have to choose your own way. There is only one thing I want from you. Find something you love. Then do it the best you can. And then when he, when it becomes clear that Jake wants to become a writer, which happens in this episode, he, Ben engages with it, right? He, yeah. um, he, he, he doesn't butter him up and say, oh my God, you're the most amazing writer ever. But he also wants him to pursue it if this is what makes him happy. So I, I guess I'm wondering, yeah, where, where can Ben be better as a father in, as, as we see him here? The one thing I would have changed is when Jake says, no, like, I think I'm going to defer this. And to Ben's credit, he does say, like, don't do that for me, you know. But, like, again, like, how much is Jake trying to take care of his dad in this moment? And is that developmentally appropriate or not? And it's really, really gray. So I'm, I'm not sure, but I would... I, well, I would... so maybe some recognition from Ben where he's, he says, where did you get the idea that you need to be responsible for me this way? Where did that come from? And yeah. delve into it a little bit. Yeah, like really being explicit of like, so you're trying to take care of me right now. Like, you know, and I and I don't need you to. Like, I should be taking care of myself and I should be taking care of you. And then so finally, Troy and Riker, is there anything that we would like to see different from the two of them in this episode? I mean, I think they're great, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I really like them as parents. And um, oh, I also really like that they're, like, much older than I think we think of parents as today. And I like that in the mm. future, that apparently you... Oh yeah, you can totally have kids in your like forties or fifties, you know. Um, and, and lots of women are starting to have children in their early forties now, which is great. But I just I really like this idea of having older parents and that being apparently something very acceptable and normal and something that is like easily possible. And that gives me some hope. That that maybe is the most contemporary thing about the depiction is this. Yeah, we waited until we had our careers, yeah. essentially, and then we started our family. And like many other things in Star Trek, thanks to the wonders, presumably, of medical technology, this is in no way a problem. There are a lot of very bad parents in Star Trek, Elizabeth. Um, I know you haven't seen all of it yet, but there's a lot of... Bad examples. Okay. <laughs> so it is really uh, nice to explore the more positive, aspirational side yeah. of that uh, that role that our characters sometimes take on um, with you. And I feel like I've learned a lot about developmental psychology uh, in our in our brief time, and I'm I'm grateful for that. Um, we're going to go into one of those 
more negative <laughs> spaces next week. All right. Um, which uh, it'll be it'll be fun, very informative, and 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 we've got some good episodes coming up. But we're gonna start talking about fathering um, next week. So be like Ben Cisco, be like Will Riker, not like um, the guys we're gonna talk about next week. But I'm I'm still looking forward to talking about that with you. You know, as humbling as it has been for me to like learn what a big responsibility it is to be a parent and like all the things that should be considered in teaching another person how to be a human. Um, I'm so grateful I, I know them versus having tried to do this before knowing any of it, you know? So I'm at least, I feel slightly more equipped even though no one ever really knows what they're doing. It's nice, uh, it, it, like you were saying before with Trent Riker, it's nice to know that you can wait until you're not a kid anymore. Yeah. At least not entirely a kid anymore before you have them of your own, uh, on your own. That's a relief, yeah. I think, for a lot of people in our generation. Yeah. But um, yes, thank you again for all your insights. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Stay tuned for Dad Trouble next week, and I will see you then. Live long and prosper. That whole backstory has been shattered in yeah. that she's she's been gaslit um, by the the her Romulan God, what's his fucking name? I can't remember his name. Boyfriend? The hot Romulan dude. No, I forget. Yeah. Give me two seconds. Okay. Sorry. Encyclopedic no, knowledge ends with Picard. <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so.